Welcome to Leaders and Legends of Online Learning, a podcast dedicated to the experts. Thank you for listening. Each episode, we'll be learning from the world's leading thinkers and practitioners in online learning and linking to ideas relevant to online teaching, working with online learners, and digital education. You can listen to the experts and check their profiles and link to some of their work on our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com. I'm Mark Nichols, the interviewer in this episode. You'll meet Dr. Vanessa Denon in this episode. Vanessa is Distinguished Professor of Education and Instructional Systems and Learning Technologies at Florida State University. Vanessa has been teaching online since the early days of the internet, and her subsequent work is focused on human interaction and knowledge sharing through computer-mediated communication. Well, it's my privilege to be talking with Dr. Vanessa Denon, who is Distinguished Professor of Education in Instructional Systems and Learning Technologies at Florida State University. Vanessa is co-editor-in-chief of the Internet in Higher Education and has as her motto, people first, content second, technology third, a philosophy she brings to her scholarship and practice. Vanessa, it's fantastic to be talking with you. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy to be chatting with you. Thank you. Can we start with a brief overview of your career and publications? Sure. Um, I have been a faculty member at Florida State University for 20 years. I just finished my 20th year here. Um, Before that, I was at San Diego State University for three years and did my doctoral studies at Indiana University. Uh, Throughout my career, throughout that entire time, I have been teaching online. So sometimes I like to joke with people that I've been teaching since the last century. I feel like that sounds a little more impressive, (laughs) right? Um, (laughs) But it was uh, in the world of online learning, that was a really interesting time to be introduced to online teaching because during my graduate studies, I was taking online classes Mm, mm. concurrent to my first experiences with online teaching. Basically, everybody was experimenting with it all at once. And I decided, oh, this is a fascinating area to study as well. So it became the topic of my scholarship. It was all a very um, organic um, process driven by personal interest and experience. Yeah. So publication-wise, you know that that led to um, starting to study the kinds of things that I was experiencing in my very first publications. My dissertation project was studying what was going on with participation in multiple online classes. It was a multiple case study, which has become um, one of my best cited publications. Mm-hmm. Along with that, as you mentioned, I care deeply about people and how people are learning. So I was very interested in things like the cognitive apprenticeship model and did some publications in that area. Um, since then, I've been working a lot with emerging technologies, social media, thinking about networks and communities. So those are the, the topics of my publications. And I've published some edited books that are focused on things like professional development in the virtual realm or global perspectives in higher education and with online education, especially with the pandemic right now and issues like social presence coming out. So really all about how do we put the people first in online learning and how do we take advantage of the wonderful stuff that is there online where we can connect to people who are in different places and resources that are not in our local environment. I am um, just, I'm in my ninth year as co-editor-in-chief of the journal, and I was an associate editor for a few years before that. And during the time that I have been there with the journal, it really took a a big turn 
toward focusing on um, empirically based articles, no more just sort of like experience based or or theorizing, mm -hmm. but really diving in on studies and trying to build the literature base systematically to the extent possible so that we really understand how these different issues and models and theories that we have for online learning play out in the classroom and, and support learning, not just, not just perceptions anymore, not just did people like this, Yeah, yeah. but are they yeah. really learning from it? Right. You mentioned earlier, you did some comparative studies for online learning, yet you're investigating the experiences. What does it actually mean or what did it mean in those days to teach online? What were some of the characteristics? What, was there a single model in play or were people trying different things? Oh, people were trying different things. So for my dissertation study, I collected my data. Um, it, it was right as we were entering this century, in fact. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I, I did a multiple case study of nine classes. Mm -hmm. um, there actually was a 10th one at the beginning. And the instructor told me that they met the inclusion criteria, which was that they were using asynchronous instruction. And I very swiftly learned that, no, he was doing synchronous teaching. Oh, yeah. Um, so he wasn't included after all. But it just shows that, like, even the terminology and the understanding of what people were doing wasn't fully there. Synchronous at that point, I, I sat in on that class for that term. And it was really interesting because the instructor was broadcasting out with audio and the students could interact through chat. And broadband was so bad that he would be talking to the students and he'd ask a question he'd be like post your answers in the chat uh, anyone anyone are you all out there are you listening to me fine nobody's listening <laughs> i'm gonna go to the next point and and then finally some it, something would show up in the chat but you would recognize if you're watching this that there had been a delay and people need time needed time to type their answers and that's why there wasn't a lot of synchronous mm -hmm. but with the asynchronous classes some of the classes had a threaded discussion boards. Some of them had unthreaded message boards. Some of them had integrated tools that they were using the earlier versions of Blackboard, um, WebCT, which of course we don't have around anymore. Yeah. Um, and, and WebCT had a pretty rudimentary discussion board system at that time. Others were using like listserv technology in order to make this happen. Yeah. And I really saw the full range of instructors who tried to be right there in the discussion with their students to the point where it could be too much or overbearing. Yeah. And instructors who were entirely absent to the point where students started talking about them in the third person. <laughs> I know, it's really funny, right? Uh, what was interesting about that, so I had these extremes mm. And the instructor who was always there in the discussion, he was so present that he posted slightly more than half of the messages in the discussion. So if you think about that, it's creating these conversational dyads between the instructor and an individual student. Mm. And that was the expectation then that the students developed. So in the middle of the class, this instructor had a personal emergency and was offline maybe two days. Yeah. In an entire term, that's not a very long period of time. But those students were so used to having that instructor respond to them immediately that when I surveyed their perceptions at the end of the term, they said things like, he abandoned us. Mm. Then let's contrast that with the instructor who 
told me he didn't really like people that much to begin with. And he really wasn't ever in the discussion boards for his class. Hmm. At one point, the students, um, he created a topic and it was a topic that could be controversial, but he didn't want them to discuss the controversy. He wanted them to discuss it as the topic pertained to the subject that they were learning. And of course, the students went way off track on the controversy part of it. They talked about him in the third person. They would say things like, do you know what he wants? Like they were so sure he wasn't listening. And on the end survey that I did, they didn't feel abandoned at all. Mm-hmm. So you get this sense of student expectations based on whatever the instructor started to do because there were no norms at that time. They, The students who didn't have any instructor involvement didn't know that they might expect their instructor to be involved. And the students who were always talking in dyads with the instructor had no sense that perhaps they should be expected to talk to each other. Interesting. So, I mean, so many themes sort of come up from that. I mean, one that occurs to me is that there was real power in those days of discussion boards and asynchronous reflection where learners could actually reflect, share their perspectives and engage with one another, depending, of course, on how the the tutor or lecturer or uh, instructor facilitated those. How do you think things have changed? Because now, of course, the technologies are much more powerful and that instructor who is using audio would no doubt now use video. How do you think things have changed from that whole reflective uh, discussion board-based approach? You must have seen many different models in your time. Oh, I think that, you know, one of the big things that we've learned is that discussion is not a singular activity, but rather it's a category of activities in which people interact. Mm. And there are so many different ways that we can do that, whether we're doing it synchronously and then we have to take account for plans of shared space because we're not going to have the ability for everybody to talk at once or even everybody to talk in a class that's bound by perhaps a 50 minute period. Mm. Uh, If we're doing it asynchronously, We've learned that we need to have a goal in mind, that it doesn't work to just tell people discuss Mm -hmm. or read and discuss. I liken that one to the idea that nobody likes a blank page. Nobody likes to be the first to post to a discussion board. When you're writing something and you open up your word processor and you sit there at the blank page, it's, it's really difficult Sometimes people type in their title and we type in an outline, like anything to have something on the page. Sometimes I find myself typing 6,000 to 8,000 words, not including references, just to have something on the page. And I think the same is true of discussion boards. People want to know what kind of a thing are you expecting for me to do there? Mm. And from that, we get into, well, are we... Are we trying to share? Are we trying to debate or otherwise negotiate? Are we trying to wade our way through some really difficult reading that we're doing? Uh, There are just endless possibilities. And of course, specialty tools have come up now. So we could have video, but it's asynchronous. Or you have the platforms that are set up explicitly to be like question and answer tools meeting the needs of, remember all the classes they said couldn't be taught online? We couldn't do math. We couldn't do programming. Yeah. Um, we you know, All those big classes as well. And now their platforms specifically designed for them to do their Q&A and even to help get students answering each other's questions and providing the help with the homework. So, I mean, so much has changed. So much has developed 
and yet there's more to be done. Yeah, yeah. So the instructor's style, what, how they believe instruction ought to take place is probably the major element there, isn't it? And it, it strikes me too that there is a Goldilocks zone for online presence. You, you can be there way too much, as you indicated earlier, or you can be almost absent and people talk about you as if you're not there, but in fact you are actually able to, to monitor the conversations taking place. Exactly. I that, For me, that has long been a fascinating part of online instruction, figuring out the role that the facilitator of the class should play in the class, um, which it, part of it is how much you are there. Part of it is how you are there. Part of it is the tone that you take when you are there in the class. Mm. And there's no singular way to do it either. Mm. So, Vanessa, there's, there's a lot of scholarship uh, from your career to date. What are some of the ideas and themes that you'd highlight from your work that you sense are particularly pertinent today? I just, in this past year, um, worked with two colleagues to do a systematic review on research on intersubjectivity. Um, so that's something that we get from Vygotsky, if you're unfamiliar with it. Yeah. The idea that... Um, we must come to negotiate to have shared knowledge, shared understanding of what we're doing in order to do it effectively. Mm. And you know, that's one of those issues in a discussion board, for example. Are we actually talking to and with each other and furthering our collective knowledge of the topic in the class? Or are we merely posting messages that are vaguely on the requested topic and perhaps even threaded topically so all messages about this topic appear in the same thread, but we're not really responding to each other? Um, perhaps we're oriented to the instructor so that they will give us our grade or tell us that we were correct or incorrect. That's We don't have intersubjectivity there. Yeah. And I recognized right away um, as a researcher in this area and as an instructor teaching online how important the concept of intersubjectivity was in order to have meaningful discussions in the class, to make it so that it wasn't busy work where I just want to say I did enough posts and check it off, but instead to bring students back to the class to motivate them, to make them take ownership of the course content. Um, so I, I um, worked with two colleagues, Barbara Hall and Amber Hedquist, and we did a systematic review. Um, and we were looking for the articles that explicitly drew upon intersubjectivity because there's a lot that's been done talking about collaboration and such, but that really, really tightly was getting back to that concept. And we found that there, there hasn't been a lot and it's been really dispersed in the literature. Mm, mm. And I think the time is, has come that maybe we need to go back to that a little bit more and take a deeper look. And I, we move past it in so many instances because it's difficult to measure. It's difficult to identify when people are engaged in a way that they are truly understanding each other and truly responding to each other. And of course, in an asynchronous conversation, we don't always know that somebody came back and read the message and then had their own internal dialogue. Oh, oh yeah, I understand what that guy is saying. I'm not telling him that. I'm not verbalizing it, but this was meaningful. So we, we're often missing that portion of it. It's just, it's hard to measure. Mm. But if instructors and instructional designers can get better at developing the prompts that will help drive intersubjectivity, developing the course culture that is going to make students want to um, participate in that way, feel safe for participating in that way, believe 
that that kind of dialogue is what is going to lead to learning. If we can can get better at doing that, I think we're going to find that asynchronous online learning becomes even more effective and also, I will go back to that, that issue of preferences and perceptions, that, that we will change the perceptions of that kind of learning, and we'll find a new group of learners who may start to develop a preference for it because suddenly they are making those kinds of meaningful connections that they feel they make in the face-to-face classroom that, that they think are lacking online. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask a bit of a controversial question here. So you're talking about genuine discourse, the ability to uh, really work out where another person's coming from and really engage with them uh, at their level. Have you ever seen that take place in a MOOC, a massively open online course? Uh, What's your impression of the dialogue that tends to take place there? I have seen it happen in MOOCs when the learners find each other in that serendipitous moment, or perhaps they have signed up for the class as a group. And there are groups who sign up together and then they do their own little study sessions outside of the MOOC together. So it's absolutely possible, but it's not something that happens all that often from what I've seen. MOOCs are an interesting part of online learning. I I tend to not think of them as um, big interactive communal spaces. I think of them as big spaces where a lot of learning silos can occur. And, and, you know, we even had to, we've had to change the dialogue about MOOCs over time. Mm -hmm. You might recall when they first came out and we said that they were going to change everything. They were going to um, democratize education and give the opportunities to people where they were then viewed the equivalent of degrees and all these people who wouldn't have otherwise gotten a higher education degree would now be getting jobs that you needed with the degree. Like none of that has really um, come to pass. There was a lot of concern with um, the dropouts, the attrition rates of MOOCs. But then we need to flip that around and say, well, is that really a problem? And that somebody signed up for the MOOC, but didn't finish it or it doesn't even mean that there's something wrong with the MOOC. Maybe I signed up because I just wanted to look around. Maybe I am genuinely interested in the topic of the MOOC, but like, Hey, I have this whole other life going on and it was free. I didn't pay for it. I mean, I've also been trying to learn how to crochet for the last five years, but I can't seem (laughs) to find the time to sit down and focus on it. So I, I've tried to um, suggest to people that, Signing up for a MOOC is a little bit like checking out a book from your library, except maybe even lower risk. Because if I check out a book from the library, I'm actually keeping somebody else from having the opportunity to read that book. But if I check the book out and then I carry it around for two weeks and I don't read it and I check it back in, or if I check it out, I read the first paragraph and I say, oh, this is so not for me. And I bring it back. No harm done. Yeah. There's no... F on my record. <laughs> I didn't lose any money. You know, and that's the way that people approach MOOCs. Mm-hmm. So it's now mid-2023. Online learning has, of course, come a very long way across both of our careers. Uh, now, the likes of conversations we're having now with video, even though we're only recording the audio, uh, are very commonplace. What's your impressions of online learning at the present time? Where are we at? I think this moment is a really interesting one for online learning Hmm. for two reasons. And I would say that, you know, 
three, four years ago, we wouldn't have seen it coming. We are now in a situation where instructors and learners alike found themselves pushed into an online setting. I, I hate to call it online learning. I much prefer emergency remote teaching and learning um, because the instructors were not adequately prepared for this through no fault of their own. The learners were reluctant learners through this approach. It was not something they signed up for. And that's not the way that we've historically approached online learning. Mm. But we have a lot of people who gained experience, gained new perceptions of the medium. And, you know, that leaves us trying to figure out what do we do now? Um, If we shift from online to thinking about blended learning, we have instructors who've gone back to the classroom, but now they have tools that they know and they understand and another modality they can use situationally. And perhaps they're going to take advantage of it. Uh, we, we don't really know and we're not going to know for a, a while like, what happens with these new skills and these new attitudes for better and for worse. Because we also have some people who are saying, uh-uh, never, ever will I take an online class if I have a choice or never, ever will I teach online if I have a choice. And, and in those instances, it's kind of a shame because I wish I could invite them to some of my classes. Um, the experiences that they have you know, reflect learning under less than optimal conditions. So we have that to contend with. And in the world of research, we have data that people were collecting during that time. And yet the COVID research isn't the same as the pre and the post COVID research because of those very um, contextual issues that we were just talking about. And I think we don't know how that research fits in. So we have to deal with that. The other thing that's happening at this moment that I think we don't know what's going to go on yet, we, we don't have a clear path, of course, is generative AI and everything that has gone on in the last year watching this rise up so quickly. Mm. Uh, I think right now, so many people, so many institutions are scrambling to figure out how to deal with it at the policy level, all of the worries about students and cheating. Of course, this isn't unique to online learning. Mm -hmm. Students are doing assignments, writing papers um, for their face-to-face classes. The technology is in use everywhere. Mm -hmm. So we need to figure out how we're going to deal with that. And then there's you know, the possibilities of generative AI and giving feedback. Does this mean that the classes could get larger because the instructor won't be spread as thin? Mm. Because there could be an agent in there giving feedback on the smaller details. Now, we're at a point right now where I think so many errors are being made and we have issues like chat GPT and the hallucinations and so on. I'm not sure that I would want to unleash that technology on my class in that capacity. (laughs) But we see the potential. We see the potential for good and have experienced the potential for bad. We just don't know. So it's, it's a dynamic time. It is, yeah, very rich time for experimentation, um, hopefully not badly. Uh, the, the research you'd most like to see, Vanessa, so if you opened up uh, a copy of the journal, you found the perfect article in there in the Internet and Higher Education, what would it be about? What would it prove? What would it be concerned with? So for me, the, the topic I most like reading on is actually not generative AI, although there's a lot, to be, a lot to be learned there and everybody seems to be jumping on that bandwagon right now. I stick with my roots. I am so interested in people and how they interact with each other and knowledge in online environments. Mm. 
and I see a lot of room for breaking out of our learning management systems as we know them now, which are so teacher-centered, so top-down. Even I want to laugh because even when they build in tools and say, we have blogs in here now, or we have a social media feed, it's still so instructor-centered, instructor-controlled. So my heart sings whenever I see new research about students um, and learning activities, whether it's formal or informal, professional development, all of that, that that is focused on using social media-like tools. And, and I want to be really clear, when I say social media, I'm not talking about putting all of your students on Facebook or Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of tools that open us up to having those rich sharing interactions, sharing of our voices through whichever medium with each other, as well as sharing of resources that we individually have found and collected and want to, to bring to our classroom community. There's still room to grow in understanding how to best design for those types of learning experiences and classes and how to facilitate them, how to assess them, how to develop lifelong learning skills for learners. I think making those connections, making those bridges to what happens next, whether that's lifelong learning for everyday life, because like, let's face it, where do you go when you have a problem? You go type it into Google, don't you? And then Google brings you some static resources and it brings you you know, Reddit posts and uh, like, there's a whole host of skills associated with this. So anything in that realm, that's what I want to see. That's what makes me really happy. Well, two people you'd recommend as legends of online learning, uh, one whose work or perspective is significantly influencing you now and one who you think otherwise might have an important perspective to share. So I would say Florence Martin is somebody who I would recommend. I have done work with her. I cite her work regularly. Mm -hmm. Two things. One, she does a lot of work with systematic reviews and she's become quite the expert in that. And through the work that she does with systematic reviews, she's really helping to synthesize this broad base of knowledge that we have out there. Mm. And I think it's important that we not just keep putting out a bunch of studies, but take those moments to say, wait, where are we at? What have we not done yet? Where, how do we build on what we're doing and be really intentional about the future of our research? Mm. The other thing that Florence has done is research, really looking at what makes online instructors successful. Yeah. I would say Camille Dixon Dean and, um, Anilda Romero Hall, Mm. and they, they're located in different places. Camille is working out of Australia and she has really great connections all over the world. I think that, that they're, they're both really good for getting more global perspectives. Anilda gets more into a, um, a feminist perspective and looking at issues of equity in online learning. Camille is not um, too far away from that issue either. And these are the kinds of issues that we need to be digging in on right now. These are going to be some tremendous voices that we're hearing from in the next few years. Well, Vanessa, you've been a case study in engaging online education and discourse. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you too for being a leader and legend of online learning. Thank you, Mark. You can learn more about Vanessa and her work from our website. That concludes this episode. Be sure to go to our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com, to follow up on this episode's guest. 
You'll also find links to others whose ideas continue to inspire and teach online learning professionals, and you can subscribe to future interviews. If you know of a leader or legend we've not yet talked to, please do drop us a line at onlinelearninglegends at gmail.com.